If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash beautifulhumans to become a Patreon. All right, beautiful humans, welcome back for another episode. This is Aaron, And this is Denisha. We've got a really awesome episode planned for you all tonight. Um, Denisha, do you want to kind of introduce today's episode? I don't know if we want to do like a check-in or we just, I just would rather get straight to it. I think, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I like it when we have panels. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to talk too, too much tonight. Um, but I'm so excited, super excited about tonight's show. We are doing our panel discussion and tonight's panel is Black Voices in ABA. Um, this particular topic is, um, important to me because, of representation, obviously, it's important in this field. Many times we go to conferences or work or we show up to any type of meeting around a fellow behavior analyst and there's not many people that look like us and we don't get to hear those stories and hear those voices. So it was particularly important for me to bring a panel like this together. And I just can't wait um, to be able to share this space with fellow professionals that also share my melanin. So, yeah. What about you, Erin? Awesome. What does this show topic mean to you tonight? I'm just excited to learn. Seriously. Um, I think it's, it, it, unfortunately, it's often that I am not in the minority and I'm actually really excited to be in the minority tonight and to sit back and to listen to these amazing uh, voices that I think have a lot to offer and to teach um, our entire field. So, I'm really, really excited just to to sit back and and to listen tonight. Yeah. So this is our February show. And as folks should know, it is also Black History Month. I do want to make sure to say that while it's Black History Month, this show idea to have Black Voices in ABA has been in the works since our inception in September. When we first got started, a few people reached out about being on our show, including one of our guests tonight, which is Jada Tucker. And it was because of Jada um, her request to be on the show, she actually sparked the idea in my mind to have panel discussions. And I just thought it would be great to have that space within this podcast to just hear from people, um, especially hear from folks that we don't generally hear from in our field. So tonight we won't spend too much time talking as we really want our listeners to be able to hear from everyone on our panel. But before we get started, let's switch to talking about our Patreon subscribers. Erin, you want to take that one away? 
Yeah, just real fast. We, um, you know, we've talked about Patreon and how um, people can support the podcast. And so uh, we do want to give shout outs to people. Uh, this is the first time we've really done this. So uh, Kelly, my friend Kelly, who's over in the UK, she's actually been a Patreon from the beginning of our show and so every month um so i just wanted to give her a shout out and then we did have a new subscriber this past week melody so she's the our first patreon of 2020 so if anybody's interested um the the link rolled uh where you all can join and and check that out um ceu opportunities will be available um we got some some awesome stickers i must curse there for a second <laughs> some awesome stickers um that i actually just dropped some in the mail for you denisha and so um yeah, so we send those out to Patreons. We're actually going to send all of uh, our panelists and people who've been on the show. We're going to backlog. So you all get a cool sticker um, for being on the show tonight, too. So, um, so yeah. So be a Patreon. That's, that's it. How about that? <laughs> Let me just say that that sticker is so cute. And if you haven't seen it just yet, go to our social sites. You can go to Facebook at... Uh, beautiful humans cast or you can go to instagram at beautiful humans change and see what aaron is talking about super cute anyway <laughs> let's get to it yeah so i want to get started by allowing our guests to kind of tell you about themselves and we're going to start off with miss jada tucker who like i said earlier kind of you know was able to feed this idea to me um, with her request of being here. So Jada, take it away. Let us know who you are. Awesome. Well, first of all, hello. Good evening. Thanks so much for having me on your show. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, my name is Jada Tucker. I am a behavior analyst that is licensed to practice in Maryland. Um, I started working in the field of behavior analysis in 2009 at Kennedy Krieger. And from there, I just absolutely love, love, love the field. So um, I ended up applying to graduate schools all around the DMV. I ended up going to George Mason, um, where I went and graduated with my master's in ABA. And I've been pretty much working in in-home um, ever since. So I'm very, very passionate about the in-home model. Um, I'm also currently working on my PhD, which hopefully I defend in March. That's next month. So I'm wrapping that up. Um, and again, I'm very, very passionate about the in-home field. So a lot of my research has been focused on um, improving the in-home model. And I think that's pretty much it. Awesome. Uh, next up, we have Shamika McGammon. Yeah. Hi. Um, thank you all for having me tonight. Um, I really respect what you guys are doing with this podcast. And I, I, I'm hopeful that um, the panel tonight will, will further reach uh, your audience. Um, I have been practicing for several years now. I started in in-home programming as well and really fell in love with uh, parent training um, and really just grew fast in the field, wanting to, to know everything all at one time. So immediately upon undergrad, I jumped into a master's program and then obviously um, practicing in the field for several years. So I have played almost every possible role you can think of as far as uh, training therapist and program consultant and staff training and all of that stuff. So that's been a wonderful experience, but I have shifted my interest in looking more at um, how we train 
future clinicians and teachers in making data-based decision-making. And so my studies um, in my PhD program is mostly focused on that. Perfect. Well, welcome. Glad to have you, Mika. Um, and next up, we have Robin Williams. Hi, thank you. I am super duper excited to be invited uh, to be a part of this podcast. And just amazingly, I feel so honored because I've been following you guys' work and, and I admire it. Um, I've been a behavior analyst since 1999. So when I finished um, my undergrad in psychology, I was working in the field under some big dudes here in Florida, um, Jose Martinez, Dr. Patrick McGreevy. They were the first people that I took my certification courses under. And I worked in um, facilities working with children, primarily with pretty severe and intensive behaviors, and just fell in love with the field. Then um, I went on to be a special ed teacher, but in, the, in my downtime from school, I was doing ABA work, ABA consulting. Um, and I've done that the whole entire time. I've had an agency for 15 years. I was co-owner of an agency with a friend of mine who is an LHC. Um, and then just last year, branched out uh, back to my own solo practice. I focus primarily on training teachers. I consult in-home still a little bit. That's, um, that's the base. That's the root. It keeps me kind of fresh and in the field. But I've been supervisor, agency owner, trainer, um, presenting at conferences. And I really am passionate about teacher training and social justice and equity. You are goals. Thank you, Robin, for joining us. Um, and last, but definitely not least, we have Sean Capel. I echo sentiments of my other panelists by saying how super excited I am to be here and to lend my voice to kind of the things that I've noticed in the field over a multitude of years. Um, I started in the field back in 2010. I started a little late. Um, I worked in hospitality for quite some time. Um, realized that I missed my nights and my weekends and my holidays. So I decided originally to go back to school for school psychology, um, realized that was not the field for me and kind of stumbled into ABA and fell in love from day one and have been moving ever since. Um, in my time, unlike the other panelists, I, I personally love kids, but I, my passion has always been with the adult learners. Um, I just find them so much more complex and fun. Um, so most of my, a lot of my work has been working with adults within group homes, um, and training staff. Um, I currently am pursuing a PhD in applied behavior analysis. Um, and my primary research focus is kind of, a uh, uh, interest of mine, um, re regarding using stimulus equivalence training, um, to target specific areas of culture awareness and diversity. Cause I feel that. That's something that we could definitely use some improvement in. Um, I also own an agency um, about two years now. Hopefully in the next couple of months, God willing, we'll be moving to Texas. So hopefully things will be moving from there. Texas, all right. They say everything's bigger there. Absolutely. <laughs> we have so many um, soon to be doctors in the house tonight, PhDs. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say, those people are the goals, not me. <laughs> That's awesome. You all definitely are. All goals. Um, mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's get right into this. Um, 
Everyone has taken a moment to highlight their work, which I'm super appreciative of. Um, I can't tell you how many times I have thought, who's doing what in our field? And specifically, who's doing what that are not the usual suspects, right? Um, And so to have you all kind of outline your own expertise and tell us, you know, what your research interests are. I hope that our listeners are hearing that when they start to think of who can they work with that um, are not, like I said, the usual suspects and and be able to think outside the box. And so thank you all for doing that. We're going to talk a lot tonight about experiences with the panel. I felt like it's important important to hear our stories. Sometimes when we start talking about data in this field, um, it's very interesting that we don't, that some people don't like listen to the stories that others are tacting as evidence. Um, but I think that information is very useful and it can inform us and in our practices moving forward. So um, while we hear from you all as you're tacting your um your experiences, your learning history, um, you know, Aaron and I just want to sit back and kind of hear that. Um, so the first thing that we're, that I have for you all tonight is how does your racial identity show up in your work, if at all? For many years working in the field and doing in-home services, when folks would contact me to come out, can you do an assessment? And, you know, we have this initial phone consultation. I don't sound like these stereotypical southern black girl born raised in Florida, although I am. So there were many times where I didn't think my blackness was showing up in work until I was confronted with my blackness by others. When I showed up at their door and looking like, oh, you're Robin. You don't sound like Robin Williams. Um, so I didn't I didn't really think about it much until I had those repeated experiences. Um, And then when I got into more um, group homework and working on state level and sitting on local review committees where I was the only Black person, I would just get these snide comments. So I feel like my Blackness has showed up at work, not because I wanted it to, but because I was confronted with it by people that I was even shocked, that was shocked that I was even in the room or shocked that I was the behavior analyst showing up to assess their child or work with their child. I feel like my racial identity shows up all the time, um, especially when I'm interacting with a lot of my diverse families. Um, I sort of have a story. So before, very early on in my career, I mentioned that I went to George Mason. So um, I worked in Northern, Northern Virginia um, doing ABA services uh, for a lot of families that were different racially than I was. So um, I went to George Mason too, which was a very, very much so a PWI. And I was surrounded around people who weren't the same race as me. So I think that when I entered the classroom and when I entered uh, clients' homes, it was painfully obvious to them that we were different. And as a result, they didn't know how to interact with me. So for me, you know, the way we look, it's different than one another. The way we talk, the way our mannerisms, our colloquialisms. um, And I can tell that it bothers them sometimes when they don't necessarily understand how to receive it or how they should act towards me initially. So because of those experiences, no matter who I'm working with, I just try to keep it very real. I mean, I am who I am and I try my best to make others feel comfortable within those differences that we have. And so 
um, I'm very open. I talk to them. I ask them questions. I get to know them. Um, I'm very open with discussion. So I feel like with, for me, it comes out all the time and kind of piggybacking off of what Robin said. It's like, they don't, they don't off topic expect us to be a certain way, but then when they see you enter the room, they're like, Oh, okay. That's who we're dealing with. That's the BCBA. But I've just found that using your voice and speaking with them and making other people feel comfortable, it really does help. I think I've, I've had similar experiences, but they didn't start that way. So when I started in the field as a therapist, it meant nothing to families that, you know, this, this black girl was coming to provide a service to their child. Um, but as I started to move up in position, as well as gain more knowledge in the field, and kind of have this platform of speaking from authority, I think that's when my blackness started to really show up. And um, I think it was a much of a slap in the face for me too. Um, I've grown up in a predominantly white town. And so I wasn't even aware of my own blackness until it started to be an issue specifically um, in similar situations that Robin and, uh, had mentioned is that oh, this is the person that's here to assess my child, or oh, this is the person that runs this clinic. Um, so I think I had to take a step back and acknowledge and respect my own blackness and kind of walk in a space of this is who I am. And yes, I am the person that's assessing your child. Um, but then now in academia, I don't find that it's much of an issue. Um, I am still the, the only black voice, uh, the only black person at the table, but I think I am surrounded by a lot of people that are at least culturally aware, uh, maybe not competent completely, but definitely uh, respectful that we do need to have a diverse table. I, my experience was a little bit different. Um, I am considered to be the unicorn of most of my um, professional circles, partly because I am a male, which we know the field doesn't have that many men. And I'm an African-American male, which is almost unheard of. Um, early on in my, in my undergraduate, well, undergraduate slash graduate career, um, I actually had a professor tell me that I would have doors open for me and I would have positions offered just because I was African-American. And unfortunately, he was actually accurate. Um, but I made a conscious decision just because I got a seat at the table, I need to have the knowledge base to back it up. So there were times where I'd walk into a family's house and they would say, oh, you're the therapist. Well, no, I'm actually the person that runs this agency. So yeah, it it's that I understand that a lot of the times when people see me, they don't assume that I've accomplished what I have accomplished. So I feel like a lot of the times in my professional career, I need to work 90 times harder than my counterparts. And then with my counterparts, unfortunately, I am the black voice that they always go to of, oh, well, should I say this? Can I say this? And I'm like, I can't speak for an entire race of individuals, guys. It's just me. I've not been given that power yet. <laughs> Not been given the power yet. <laughs> um, yeah, we say it, you know, all the time within the community, but, you know, Blackness is not a monolith. We folks think, feel, believe in many different ways. And, and though there are commonalities, right, 
there's never going to be one person who can serve as the authority. Um, And many times it seems like that is what certain people expect. Can you provide insight into this group because you are from this group? And it's like, oh, yeah, of course I can. However, this is not how this works, right? So, um, all right. So a lot of you have kind of talked about your leadership roles, where you are right now um, in terms of serving as like the supervisor or the owner of agencies, doing trainings, um, et cetera. Can you all discuss your path to leadership? And with that, I would really like for you to talk about your access to supervisors and mentors that look like you. Have you had that during your tenure in this field? And if you did have that, what was the process in actually procuring or securing that person as your mentor or your supervisor? I have not had a supervisor of color in the 20 plus years that I've done this. Um, I've had colleagues that have been in the field longer than I have that have served somewhat as, um, you know, kind of like a mentor, but never a supervisor. Everyone has always been either um, a white male or a white female. Yeah, same here. Um, I actually had, I was lucky enough to be able to work for a Black-owned ABA company while I was an RBT transitioning into a BCBA. So although I didn't necessarily have supervisors that looked like me, I did work for a company where I felt supported um, and it was very refreshing. And it helped me with my confidence in the field um, just because I knew that I worked for a company that really, really had that support and had my back when you know, I did have issues in the field, or if I wanted to come to them and talk to them about, you know, differences that I was having with my supervisor that I know I couldn't bring to my supervisor because she or he may not have understood. My supervisor was a Caucasian man, love him, but that's what it was. Um, My role to leadership, I was within a predominantly Caucasian company at that point. So the fact that I obtained a leadership role shocked a whole bunch of people, just partly due to my work ethic, because I don't believe in vacations or days off. I like to work, unfortunately, um, which doesn't necessarily help my social life, but that's not here nor there. Um, self-care, self-care, regarding, self-care. I, it's super important, but I needed to get to a point <laughs> where I, I could take the vacations that I wanted to take. Um, and I actually, I still believe in mentorship. So I'm actually in contact and I have a African-American mentor who is currently out in California. And it's really interesting to see how we interact compared to my original supervisor. Cause there are just conversations and topics that can be had that can always be had with other people. Yeah. And for me, I have actually never worked with a person of color. Um, I've been in the field for almost 15 years now, and I've always been the only black person in leadership and for the most part, the only black BCBA. Um, And that goes across state lines from South Carolina to Texas and California. So um, when it comes to mentorship, I'm usually that person for someone else. Um, So I've I've never really had that um, opportunity, and my goal is to provide that for, you know, 
people of color who are trying to enter the field and to move up and in leadership positions as well. I definitely have to say that that's been one of my goals as well um, with owning an agency and even now back in solo practice, just being more aware of who is in the field, staying connected to RBTs and BCABAs who used to work for me that are people of color, all of them, but especially those that are people of color who want to advance in the field and being just like a, a guide for them and a support system, part of a support system. So I must say, you know, my um, experience is very similar to all of you all's. Um, when I started, I started off as a as a therapist. And over the trajectory of my career, it's always been myself and maybe one other. Like I've always been able to have at least one other, maybe. And so, um, and, and that is person of color in general, not just like one other black person, but one other person that is of color, a minority, a racial minority. Um, and so then I moved to Baltimore and I feel like Baltimore is just very different than Missouri and even in New York where, you know, no one really looks like me. Um, even the therapists were not of color. But when I moved to Maryland, a lot of the RBTs or line staff are actually racial minorities. And so seeing that, number one, it was it's just it was different. And I immediately was like, wow, am I home? Um, and I felt that connection in a different way that I hadn't had. And it made me think about supervision a little bit differently as well. Um, it's it's easier for me to consider um, supervision in a very cookie cutter way um, when I was supervising folks that didn't look like me. But once realizing that the numbers are different in the fields or that you don't see minorities that often, you've I, I felt like a, a need to like, let's help groom you, like groom you to stay here and groom you to to climb up in the ranks you can become a BCBA one day as well. And so I, I feel like there's a little difference in that and, and just people wanting to have that connection, that similarity, um, and knowing that they could do it too because they see you in that position of leadership. So um, I, I, um, I, I just want to chime in on that, Denisha, if I can. In a lot of the, <clears throat> excuse me, in a lot of the work that I'm currently doing, um, I'm serving as clinical director for group homes, intensive behavior and behavior focused group homes here in Central Florida. And I've done that work for, for some time. But what I'm noticing is that more and more uh, black, there are more and more black providers and owners of group homes here. And the majority of their staff in, in Central Florida tends to be black or Hispanic. So when they see me come in as the BCBA and they're watching what I'm doing and they're seeing the changes and the clients, it's like, oh, well, what do you do? Will you tell me more about it? And I'm so quick to tell people, hey, have you ever heard of what, uh, an RBT, a registered behavior technician? This is your path. This is a step that you can start. You can begin and ultimately end in the same career because they care for the people that they work for. They have a genuine heart that the, the people that typically come and ask me, they have a genuine heart for individuals with developmental disabilities. And they really like seeing the changes that the science of ABA can bring about if it's implemented with, with fidelity, right? So I'm happy to be that cheerleader and that support of 
yes, you can do this. You can do the same thing I'm doing and you can flourish. You can excel. I love it. And I, and I think that um, as we talk about this field branching out, like the ones that are here already, um, we have the ability to kind of speak to one, our experiences, but then also be able to, to build people's strengths up. So uh, yeah, I, I can't um, stress enough how important that it's been for me to see other people of color, to go to a conference and look around. And even if I'm only able to count six of us or three of us, to see that connection like, hey, like we're here. <laughs> and the, so, the funny yeah. thing is, Denisha, when I met you, I think last year at ABBA, um, I walked in knowing I'm probably gonna be the only person that looks like me and I was walking around and I just started to see all these these African American faces. And I was like, wait a minute, did something did something change? So as like when I spoke with Denisha and she started to connect me into some of the social media groups and things of nature, it literally blew my mind on my like I literally at one point, don't tell anybody this, but on my way, like the first right after i met denisha i literally went back to my hotel room and had a couple of tears because i was like yo i am not the only person that actually does this because a lot of my experience was we're a lot i know being in jersey and working in group homes a lot of our frontline staff are african-american but a lot of our leadership and a lot of the people that we look up to are not so to see people that were up there presenting i was like okay so i guess i'm on the right path Makes sense. Um, Yay for confirmation. Literally. Yes. And I kind of <laughs> want to talk to um, our listeners just so that, you know, folks who are not part of um, a racial minority or just a minority in general may not understand what people mean when they say seeing someone in a position of leadership, seeing someone speaking that looks like me, like what that actually does. When you go to conferences time after time after time again and you see no one that's on that stage that looks like you or in anywhere near you, it kind of sends a message that that space is not for me. My space is in the audience. Actually, is my space really in this audience because we're barely here too? And so to be able to just have a connection with someone and say, wow, like they're doing this, I think it really evokes the, I can do this too spirit. Um, and knowing that that could be you on that stage, that could be you on that podcast, that could be you as a BCBA. And so that's what that representation part really means to me. Um, so yeah, I didn't ask you all this question previously, but I would love if you all could kind of speak to this because we're on the topic of conferences. Um, for me, when I go to conferences, I have a whole routine or any place that is going to be predominantly white. I have a whole routine that I have to go through to prepare myself. And I'm wondering if that is the case for any of you all. And Sean, you're shaking your head. So I feel like that's resonating with you. Can y'all speak to me about your preparation stage? I feel like I'm always in preparation. Uh, I work with mostly white people. I'm, if I'm not at the group home, I, I, I feel like I work with mostly white people when, and especially when I'm in a conference setting, if I'm presenting, I'm around mostly white people. So I'm always in my, I'm always mentally like hyper aware of my behavior, how I'm interacting, my facial expressions. My colleagues tell me all the time, 
Robin, we never know what you're thinking. You're so stoic. You don't, you don't show any emotion. Well, I, I've kind of been trained to be that way because people often mistake what I'm trying to convey if I show any expression, which I think is part of, of being a Black person in mostly white spaces. So I feel like I'm always in preparation mode. I can't think of a specific routine that I have, but yeah, every day when I get ready to go to work, it's, I mean, down to what am I going to wear? Am I going to put my hair up this way? Am I going to show that I have a tattoo or not, depending on where I'm going? So it's it's always something. I can, I totally second everything that you just said. As a Black mm-hmm. woman, we kind of do have to go that extra mile to always think about okay, how are we coming off to our colleagues? How are we coming off to our clients? You know, do we wear this or do we wear that? Do we say this? Do we say that? And I've gotten that same, um, that same comment about my facial expressions too from um, my former clinical director at my last company who was Caucasian. And she would always tell me, like, I can never tell what you're thinking. I can never tell whether you're happy. I can never tell whether you're sad. And that was because of, you know, past experiences that I've had with her, you know, I didn't know how to react because I always sometimes felt like if I reacted a certain way, it would be perceived wrong because it was in the past. So totally agree with what you just stated. I feel like, too, it, it kind of makes me angry sometimes, too, just that as a Black woman, I feel like we always have to do that just to make other people feel comfortable. And t- to be honest, it pisses me off. Like, I should not have to always temper myself or remain stoic most times because it helps you to feel comfortable. Um, but that's a whole nother conversation. But But, you know, I'm sure that most of us on the call can can um, we share that same sentiment? I think for me, it's my preparation is making sure that I have a voice at the table, right? So I am that person that will go over my talk several times just to make sure that I sound equal, right? Or or more than, right? So I, I feel like my entire career has been giving 150% just so that I can be viewed as 100%, right? Um, Not so much concerning my appearance or facial expressions or anything like that, but it's just being viewed as someone who has an equal voice in the conversation. That's a great point, Mika. For me, I'm a little different. Um, As as an African-American male, especially within this field, I understand that every aspect of everything I do is scrutinized, is critiqued in some way, shape, and or form. So even with, I know the um, ABBA is coming up in a couple of months, I am already thinking about not just the presentations that I'm doing, but I'm factoring in when can I get my haircut because I need to make sure I look right, figuring out the outfits and how I need to present myself, partly because I understand that if I'm going to be in front of people, there's a way that I need to present myself. I cannot walk in in just a regular shirt, no tie, and regular shoes. I've got to walk in with the full three-piece situation. And although it does take a lot of effort, I feel like I have to put in 
a lot more effort when it really isn't. The only thing that should matter is what's coming out of my mouth. Unfortunately, that's not always the case, but I understand the seat that I'm in, but I also wanna ensure that even with my presentation, I'm not deterring or turning people off, which shouldn't be the case, but unfortunately it is sometimes. So I have a question to the other panelists because I don't know if it's because, you know, people say once you hit 40 years old, forget it, you don't care about anything, you don't care about what people think. I don't know, but as I get older and as I continue to learn and continue to grow and continue to develop myself professionally, I feel like those things, our appearance, um, it should not, we know that it should not matter, but I'm just wondering to the other panelists, how do you deal with the frustration and anger that comes with that, really? Because I go to so many conferences and there are so many other BCBAs with just as much experience as I have, and they can walk into a room with ripped up jeans and chucks and a dirty t-shirt and present, and they are taken seriously and they're comfortable. And I like jeans. I like chucks. I can't do that. You know what I'm saying? So how do you how do you deal with the frustration that comes with that? So Robin, that's actually just real fast. I've been like formulating this question in my head ever since Sean said something about your workhorse and like, and then Robin, you said something about self care, but it's like, does that all factor into this and in, in like elevated levels of stress as like this needing to almost like prove yourself um, at, at Sean, what you just said is like, it, it resonates because I have, I've been at conferences where I've seen white male presenters go in with, with wrinkled shirts and, and sandals on and, and baggy khakis and, and the room is packed and full, you know, and, um, and you're saying that's, that's not the case and just your perspective of that. Um, so I guess I, I was just kind of formulating that. Does that like play into like burnout and, 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 you know, all of that for you all? Yes, not the it does. Not the Absolutely. Question, Robin. <laughs> no, no, no. But it, but it yeah. does. I mean, you may be able to hear the frustration in my voice. I, I get kind of sick of it because all of us on this call, all six of us, all of us, we're all capable and knowledgeable in our own right. And I understand professionalism and standards and those things. However, it, it's not um, that everyone is not held to the same standard. And we know this to be true, right? So how does everyone else deal with it? I'm sure we all have our own self-care routines that we do, but I wonder if that's something that will ever change, you know? I know with me, um, it doesn't affect me. I'm going to be completely honest with you. I personally enjoy it. And the reason why is because I understand that I am a minority in a minority in a minority. So a lot of the times when I step onto the stage, I need you to see me coming from a mile away. Like I need you to me, and this is my own personal thing. I need you to, I dress like I am the one that's running everything in here. So when you see me and when I open my mouth, there is no question of, yes, I might be a minority, but I will talk circles around you. So a lot of the times when I've actually had clinicians tell me, that they were surprised at my knowledge. And I'm like, I know that you don't need, don't clock me, let me do what I need to do. So that way, when, when you start to see books and articles and things from me, just, just understand that I get like over third to me, I look at it like, who gonna check me? Let's go. 
Who gonna check me? Lord knows. <laughs> so for me, when I'm preparing for conferences, um, there's definitely some that feeling of I'm already burnt out before I go. Like I have to mentally prepare myself for microaggressions. I have to mentally prepare myself for the questions that might be related to my expertise that are just, you know, you kind of like question their question. Like, I wonder why they asked me that particular one, like um, where you feel like they're kind of running your resume and just making sure that you belong to be here. Um, But for me, it feels like draining to even have to prep for those spaces. And, you know, I have to prepare in a way that's like, well, I've talked about it before. Like I center myself. I have to remember like why I'm doing this, Um, get in touch with like my values, my community values and stuff like that in order for me to walk into those spaces Um, and walk into those spaces whole because I, I hear a lot of what we're saying tonight as being, you know, impacts of systemic oppression. And so we have to shift our behavior. We have to modify the way that we would show up in this room um, to avoid some type of negative consequence, probably, whether it's real, um, like it's a, a real threat in this certain context, or it's just perceived as a threat because of our learning history. And um, so, yeah, that I feel like my experience getting ready to go into those spaces, um, it takes a lot. And so, and I wonder if that is a feeling that our counterparts also share, like, oh, I got to go, I have to go be the token here, you know, and I have to put on a a certain voice, which I don't do um, too much now. Like if you hear me speak, I go in between um, the code switch and African-American vernacular English. And I do it intentionally um, because that's how I speak. And that's what you're going to (laughs) get. Honestly, Denisha, I have found in presentations, people like when I do that code switch, people have come up to me like, when you said it that way, it made more sense to me. What, you know, and, and it's not just us. A lot of times our culture becomes the culture. So how we say it is how most everyone is saying it. You know what I mean? I know that that was one of the um, questions we had later down the line, but I was actually going to comment on that about how, you know, we tend to code switch often, but a lot of times other races code switch as well. And I've definitely been around other Caucasian people, other, other races where they talk and speak very differently outside of work than they do it you know, at work or at conferences. And a lot of the times it'll be the same type of um, language that you hear in hip hop music and rap music, which is usually our culture um, doing those things. So a lot of the time I feel like code switching, definitely we can relate to our counterparts by doing so. So for the listeners who are not aware what code switching is, essentially code switching was first studied in terms of linguistics. It's when folks have to uh, modify their language to kind of fit into the um, larger society's um, linguistic patterns. And so 
if I have my own way of speaking, which is AAVE, as I spoke earlier, a code switch for me um, would be to shift the way that I pronunciate certain sounds or to take away those twangs. I'm from Missouri. We have a certain dialect that we speak in. So for me to code switch, you wouldn't hear that. Um, So yeah, so going back and forth um, between the standard English, right? And then AAVE, that's what I tend to do versus staying in my code switch, which is, you know, I have to put on my call center voice or whatever that is um, to make sure that folks consider me to be intelligent. So um, the rest of you all, what are your thoughts on uh, code switching? Do you do you do that? Do you stick to the regular um, standard English or do you allow yourself to kind of be who you are, speak how you want to speak, regardless of who's listening? Um, and yeah, what are your thoughts on that? For me, um, growing up in North Carolina with a very thick Southern accent um, and then coming to Jersey and having to lose that accent very quickly, um, I've always learned to code switch. Um, but I, I am who I am. So to me, I might, I'll slip into certain things. Like I'm always making sure that I'm appropriate for the current setting that I'm in. Like, I'm not going, I'm not going to say certain things around certain people. Um, but even within our community, the community, me being considered a minority in that community, there are certain things that I said that I realized it might connect with certain people. So I kind of read the audience I'm with or I'm in to say, okay, I can, I can say certain things. I can, you know, I might be able to say this particular term and not have to give a five minute explanation behind that because they know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm from South Carolina. um, So I've never, I guess I've learned to code switch, but for the most part, I think I grew up speaking standard uh, vernacular and so in professional settings I find that I'm not code switching as often as some of my my friends um, in other professions but I don't think that's something that we should have to do right so obviously I have different perspectives from you guys you you do it frequently um, but I think it's problematic that in order for us to have again Uh, an equal seat at the table, we have to conform to what other people think is appropriate or um, the predominant or dominant uh, vernacular. And that's just unnecessary anxiety that is put upon us. I can finger snap to that Seriously, because um, I say it a lot, like you're going to get these double negatives. That's how I speak. Um, And it needs to be accepted. I'm speaking English to you. Um, And just you you understand, (laughs) you understand exactly what I'm saying. Yes. And so to be caught up on that, well, that wasn't said just right, you know, Um, and like feeling like we have to be broken down to that small particle um, in order to be. Um, equal, I guess, to y'all. Like, I'm not doing that. And yeah, Sean, you were going to say something? I'm going to be quiet. (laughs) 
No, and honestly, I think we all code switch. I think the entire field because we go from applied behavior analytic terminology back to quote unquote regular folks talk. It's we do it so quickly that I find myself, even with conversations with my loved ones and my parents, I'm talking about certain things and they're like, okay, wait, stop. I don't know what none of them words you just said was. Break it down to me like I'm a four-year-old. All right, cool. Like, so I think it's something like, even when we code switch, I don't think it's something that we do intentionally. I think it's just sometimes uh, innate behavior that or a habit that we engage in that it's like, oh, I said that. Oops, I'm sorry. My bad. Whoops. There was something that I think it was Jada had mentioned earlier is that um, oftentimes we hear other cultures or other races code switching as well. Um, and we're really seeing that they too are drawing from hip hop and, and rap music and, and our culture as a formal way of speaking with each other. And so I find it very ironic that in a professional setting, those same people almost side eye or question what we said when we are speaking a um, the when they too speak that. So it's almost like you just want to look at people and just say, you know exactly what I'm saying because you too speak this way. Like you listen to the music that represents this vernacular. So of course I understand that you understand what I'm saying. I concur. Finger snaps to that. That's why I just said that. You know exactly what I'm saying. So why are you why are you trying me? My professional side eye is real great. Trust me, because I've been in settings where people say stuff and I'm like, wait a minute, hold on. That now you know, you know that is not how you would typically say that. Agree. So we spent a lot of time um, you know, talking about kind of some of the things that we see in the field um, that have served as problematic to us. Um, I would like for us to kind of talk about how we think our field and people who are part of our fields um, can do better for people of the diaspora. Like what are some actionable steps um, that you would like to see in this field that really incorporates the voices and the experiences of everyone, but especially folks that are part of the diaspora. So I'll jump in because as soon as Denisha, as soon as you said that my ears perked up, um, last year, I actually wrote a blog post on the current state of African Americans. And in that, um, actually writing that on the way from the last ABBA, um, I had to sit on a plane for three and a half hours and really reflect on what the field was doing right and what we could do better. The first thing I think the fields can do is we can actually acknowledge the problem that we are not as multicultural as we can be and actually and actually release the information that says, okay, this is where we currently are. If we're a field that collects data and we are so data driven, how is it that we don't have demographic data on the current racial and ethnic um, identities to be BCBAs, BADs? and things of that nature. And trust me, I have tried my best to obtain that information from the board and it is the best kept secret in the field. They will not release that at all. 
Same. I have as well. I actually was ready to evoke my social justice spirit and create a movement to get that data. <laughs> I feel you, Sean. Dying I'm with it. There. I'm with it. Yes. So, okay. We have released the data. Um, acknowledge there's a problem. Anyone else? What are some things that we can do? I think that what we could do, I think that we should be more outspoken when uncomfortable instances arise. I mean, I just kind of feel like we should, we definitely recognize differences and we find ourselves kind of bottling up those feelings that we have instead of having conversations about them. And although those conversations can be so uncomfortable, how can we ever talk about changing how things are if we're not acknowledging things like Sean was saying and actually having conversations about them. I agree, Jada. I think that this uh, podcast is definitely a step, an actionable step towards making lots of social change and recognize the beauty in humanity. Um, continuing education, continuing to serve as mentors and being explicit in seeking out people who are interest, interested in the field and training them and supporting them is definitely another way that we can combat the, the issue. You have just become my new bestest friend, Ms. Robin. Um, one of the things that I find completely mind-numbing at times is a lot of the times people within our community they just see the RBT credential as the end all be all. And I think that as certified and board certified um, African-American behavior analyst, I think it is our, not just our, our right, but it's our responsibility to educate these quote unquote RBTs and front level staff. Like, no, this is what you're doing right now, but go back to school. There are a million different ways we can get you back into an academic program to get you to get past this test. Another thing I think personally, um, to exist completely within the binary, um, or at least pass as, as living in the binary, some who want the absolute opposite of that. Uh, you know, all of these people I am, I am grateful for and pull strength and inspiration from every single day. Okay, so last question was one to two sentences about what pride means for me. Uh, it's great that you put a cap on it, because as you can see, brevity is not <laughs> my strong point. Um, so for me, pride is really about holding space for the celebration of all of this. So all of all of the things that we've been talking about, the really, really hard stuff, uh, the really beautiful stuff, uh, the communities, um, the self-reflection, uh, all of that, just, just uh, you know, showing up and honoring each other. And uh, if that could count as one big run-on sentence, uh, the second sentence would be... Um, honoring, uh, acknowledging, and being indebted to the incredible people who came before us, um, so many of whom, uh, as I've been talking about, were queer and trans people of color. And pride has to mean uh, 
it has to mean that celebrating the love that we have today encompasses deep self-reflection and action and commitment to a better world for everybody. So I'll start off by saying thank you for taking this time to actually let us hear your story and to take just even a few moments to let us in to who you are. You know, we've been on this journey together for a long time and I've gotten the opportunity to get to know you better, but there's something special about this episode for me to have a space where everyone can say what they want to say, how they want to say it, when they want to say it. And so um, I'm just really honored that you are part of this, this beautiful project. So thank you. All right. So let's start out. Can you tell our audience members a little bit about yourself? Introductions are the hardest thing. doesn't matter where you are. Um, <laughs> I am one of the co-hosts of Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> all right. So I am a, I guess, white, identify as white, um, non-binary, transgender human. Uh, my pronouns are they and them. Um, I don't know what to say about myself that's relevant for this conversation. I think um, part of my experience that's important to me was that I was raised as a Christian in the Protestant church. Um, and, and now, not because of um, gender or sexual orientation or anything like that, um, but identify as an atheist. Um, again, not a result of how certain churches view um, identities uh, that, that are in alignment with mine. But, um, but I do think that whole experience played a large role in my development as a, as a human being. Um, if you had the opportunity to tell your story, what would be the part that you want the world to hear today? So I thought a lot about this and being one of the people that created these questions <laughs> I wrote down <laughs> I was telling you before I recorded I wrote down my answers um, and just like notes of things that I would want to say prior to hearing anybody else's answered so I wouldn't be influenced but I think um, in terms of this part of my story I almost think of like themes and I think privilege plays a huge role in my story um, but also the part that people tend to miss or that some see very well because they know me closely is is one of like perseverance and resilience and this um, need to be authentic and not be anything else. Um, and it's taken a, a long time to get to that point, um, to even have the space to realize what that is or what that feels like. Um, I did not even hear the word non-binary until I was 32, I want to say. And, um, and I think it was 2020 when I came out, told my parents I was gay. Um, and, you know, spent the better part of my adulthood in, um, in a relationship that I'm no longer in, but had identified um, as cisgender and, um, and gay and 
And I thought that that was enough. I thought that that was good, but there were always like these little things that just didn't feel right. And I thought it was just a, a part of the experience of um, being a person who was just uncomfortable with their body or something like that. And it wasn't until I heard this word non-binary that um, it's like everything kind of like clicked into place. But at the same time that everything clicked into place, like everything kind of like fell out of place. Cause it's like, now I was in this nice secure place that um, I understood and that the world understood relatively. And if they didn't agree with it, they can understand it. But now everything that makes sense to me and how I, and I can't even explain like the, how, how you identify that way. It just feels right. Um, now that doesn't make sense to anybody. And now that is living this identity um, that is 10 times harder than it was before. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question necessarily, but I think that it's um, uh, the, the story or what I would want people to know is that, um, you know, through, through all of this, like being authentic, it's, it's not always easy. Um, and it doesn't always come when you would expect it to come. Um, and that there's a lot of pain, but also a lot of joy associated with all of that. Knowing what you know now, what would you tell your younger self? This is such a an act consistent like, like exercise that we would do at like a conference or workshop or something where you go back and you think about um, yourself as a child. And, and I thought a lot about this question too and trying to, to revisit what life was like. And, and again, I lived a a very like a life of privilege and it was great and I was supported I had all the resources I ever needed um, but I think going back and telling myself all the struggle that I didn't even realize I was having is just to know that I at that point in time I'm more than the boxes that people put me into um, that the the weird qualities or the things that people didn't understand or the things that were quote unquote wrong with me um, along with all of the, like that in and of itself was whole and beautiful and completely valid. Um, and just because I did not fit into this box that um, whether it was my parents or the community I was raised in or society at large didn't quite understand or didn't see to be in alignment with what made them comfortable. That doesn't mean that, um, that anything was wrong with me as an actual person. Who is the ancestor or the movement leader in which you pull or have pulled your strength or inspiration from? You asked me this question and we briefly talked about it on the phone. And I was like, I don't, like this is all so new to me that I haven't explored as in terms of like the history um, enough to have that. But I have to have pulled inspiration from somewhere. And I think sometimes we don't realize that we do. And, um, and I think there are a lot of examples of strength and resilience and courage that are out there currently. And those are in the people that live their truth and at, to what cost it might be, um, whether it's the harm and violence they experience and they continue to persevere through all of that. Um, but then also inspiration in terms of like the, the you know, from the, the generations behind me, um, you know, the ones that my kids are in and wanting to do better for them. Um, the, if you just talk to a kid and ask them and tell them about gender and how it's fluid and some people might not, they, they, they're so accepting, they're so innocent, they're so um, 
like that is what I wish the rest of the world would be. And that ability to see beauty in people, regardless of how they identify, is inspirational in and of itself. Well, with Pride Month upon us, in one to two sentences, what does pride mean to you? So in like two words, one being hyphenated, like pride is unapologetic Mm. (laughs) self-love. Like straightforward, like nothing. um, It's, and that's hard. It's hard to say that um, because all the messages that you're kind of sent, but if you think of pride removed from everything else and and being proud of yourself, it is, it's, it's unapologetic self-love. Well, I certainly feel like I learned a lot. I loved a lot. I felt a lot during these segments. And so I hope that our listeners also were experiencing some private events during this time um, that got them closer to their own humanity, other people's humanity, um, and just gets them excited to celebrate pride. Operating from a space of, I want to be a person that practices cultural humility, you understand that the work is ongoing. We all have our biases. We all have our places where we need to learn more. So moving towards cultural humility is where we- How our behavior science was going to get bought and sold to the highest bidder. And if you're thinking about capitalism and, you know, we talked about this before on a few shows, Aaron and me just like kind of, how did we get here? How did we get to autism? What was the function behind that? Um, Like capitalism has to be brought into that into that conversation. Um, But yeah, I think they would be tired because if they envisioned that we would get swept up with the world, no, because that's not (laughs) the type of work that they were um, putting out. And, you know, talking about, first of all, hi, Aaron's class. Hello, (laughs) y'all. Hi. (laughs) But no, I was, I I was literally having that conversation with myself that the, um, that our, our degree programs don't cover this type of information unless you go to, you know, um, schools that are like UNR, your school, Malika. Um, but it's autism. We're preparing our students to be to know all of the the seminal pieces on autism work. Um, but then the the works of you know, gold diamond get buried up under it. And we don't understand how our science actually, we say our science is applicable to everything, but we don't understand what that even means um, to us on a day-to-day basis, what that means in terms of the evoking behaviors that are actually for the good of all human beings, for the good of all living beings, right? Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, what were you gonna say, Erin? Mm-hmm. I was just gonna say, it, I think you, there's been this theme that we've been talking about lately and it's that, regardless of whatever current climate our society is in right now and where there's there's this focus and orientation on social justice and equity um people have been doing this work for decades for centuries um and it is not something new that we've invented and i just want to point out i really appreciate how you have whether it's in this conversation the paper and any presentation that i've seen you talk about um you're honoring that and you're saying these people have been saying this and it you know they're going to be tired because they, you know, if they were here to see that, but it's just, um, this is no different. 
And so this is just another example of how we can, you know, re- reinforce people uh, to, yeah. to understand that. Well, it's, it's difficult for behavior analysts because, yes, some good work has been done in, in behavior analysis, but there's so much good work that needs to be looked at outside of behavior analysis when we're talking about these big, complicated constructs, especially like the commodification of behavior data, the exchange of behavior data for money. Um, and that can happen in clinical settings with children with autism. That can happen with, with me publishing whatever I publish and I get a grant or somebody gives me a bunch of money to talk about my research, that we live in a capitalist society, so the commodification of behavior data cannot be ignored. And and so I borrow a lot of work and I spend a lot of time digesting other fields, sociology, anthropology in particular, and trying to make that and put it in the behavioral construct so that I can understand it as a behavior analyst and then convey it to our family as behavior analysts. And that is that is part of the labor too, that it's exhausting. And um, right now I am focused on, on, if you're, if your listeners are interested, I am focused on reading just works by black women right now. I am, I am 